What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, I've been looking at houses lately, and it is absolutely buck wild this year. I don't know if either of you have looked at all. Not on my radar at all. A little bit here and there. But something about the 2020-2021 the super exciting life stew that we've all created together um, with our good pal, the COVID... Housing is wild. I've literally driven past open houses where there's a line of like 15 people outside. I'm just like, well, not worth stopping because it's going to be an hour and a half before I get to look at this thing. So bye. The the sad answer is probably that a lot of people lost their houses during job situations and then they got bought off by companies and now are getting sold again. (laughs) No, it's not. That's not the problem. There's no inventory. There's no houses on the market, which like there's like. In our, like, search range is, like, a pretty big area, like, an hour circle, and our price range is pretty wide and, like, typical, and there's, like, 13 total houses, and that's, like, our only search criteria. It's wild. So there's dozens of people looking at each single house that, like, comes onto the market, and there'll be, like, two new ones a week. Anyway. You gotta start getting, get creative with your search. Look for these weird houses that we're about to cover. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. So houses are on the mind. So we're going to do a housing question. Um, and we got our, our home grab bag today. And so what is our home grab bag? We're going to answer the question of what if everyone lived in a blank? And we're each going to fill in that blank with something different. For example, I'll be starting us off. And my question that I'm going to be answering is what if everyone lived in a castle? Because castles are the coolest type of living arrangement. But really, the the first thing that we have to answer is, what is a castle versus, you know, like a palace or anything else? So what is what is the definition of a castle? And at the risk of sounding like a high school presentation and or, you know, valedictorian speech, but this is one of the very, very few times it's appropriate to start like this. The Oxford Dictionary defines a <laughs> castle as a large building, typically of the medieval period, fortified against attack with thick walls, battlements, towers, and in many cases, a moat. Which means our criteria are, it's got to be a large building, and it has to be fortified against attack via thick walls, battlements, and towers. The optional bits that start with typically, in many cases, are being in the medieval period, which is good, which means we can build new ones and we don't have to worry about using just only the ones that exist. And the moat. The moat is optional, which is also handy for figuring things out mode optional is my favorite dress code for events personally <laughs> <laughs> no moat no service all right um so so the first thing i'm going to define here is what is a large building what what counts as a large building so basically the in my head in order for you to be like yeah that's a large building you have to look at it and it has to just be first bigger than average and enough so that you're like yep that's a big building so if you're looking at an individual home the average home size in 1983 was 1,660 square feet. This actually increased since then 
to, in 2015, being 2,687 square feet. So the average home size has increased by 1,000 square feet in the last, like, well, 40 years, which is kind of crazy, actually. Houses are getting big. So I'm going to say, if you have an individual home, it's got to be at least 3,000 square feet for it to be identifiably a large building. For a commercial building, if it's like a, a complex or something, um, the average commercial building size is between 16 and 19,000 square feet, puts it up to 20,000 square feet. So that's where I start with my criteria and kind of check against that. I tried to find the the smallest castle in the world to see what the smallest thing that counts as a castle is. And according to the Brits, it's uh, this building called Molly's Lodge, which they have officially recognized as the world's smallest castle. And it's only 785 square feet. That doesn't seem right. But it is officially recognized because, quote, it has corner turrets, mullion windows, and a crenellated parapet from which arrows could be unleashed. So it fits the fortified against attack part of my definition, but doesn't really fit the large building. So the British call it a castle. I'm not sure if I call it a castle. How how tall is it? It's, it's basically like an inn. Like, it looks like a stylized bar. Like, it's got, okay. like... A main living room and like like a bedroom and like a net. like it's got like three rooms inside. It's seven hundred eighty five square feet is not a lot. It's pretty cute actually if you want to Google it, but it just looks very. It looks like a little castle, like you would imagine, like a playhouse castle almost. I mean, there's no official definition for large, so you could classify it as large. Yeah, you could say like yeah, you could say large as anything, but it's larger than me. It's kind of neither here nor there. Even at, like, if I use my larger number, the 3,000 square feet, like, it's not so big that it's causing problems. And another thing in that regard is one of the issues I was looking at is, hey, if everyone's got to live in a big castle, do we run into, like, you know, space issues, especially, like, you know, city centers and things like that. But the castle is not just, you know, where the king lives. Castles actually are count as the whole, you know, the, the, where the king lives is, like, the keep. And everything else around it is still part of the castle, everything inside the walls. So there are three different types of castles. The earliest form of castle is the Mott and Bailey castle. And the Mott with has two parts, the Mott and the Bailey. Um, the Mott was basically just a big hill that you built up and put your keep on top of, like a, like a small hill that's very steep. And you'd put a palisade, which is a fancy word for a big wood fence, to form a perimeter at the top of the hill. And inside that would be your actually wooden keep this is all wood the mountain bailey castle and then the bailey was a separate area somewhere at the bottom of the hill or on a smaller hill that is kind of like the castle village and sometimes and sometimes it would also have a wooden palisade around it where the non-lordy people would live and it would connect with a big wooden bridge to the mot so basically you'd have to go through the town go up the big wood ramp bridge into to get up to where the lord lives the keep then there is the stone keep castle. So this is the type of castle you typically imagine. You know, it's got a big stone wall with turrets and towers around it. And at the center of it, a big stone keep. That is the main lordy place, which is how I'm referring to keeps apparently today. <laughs> Interesting, the area inside the walls, but not inside the keep, is actually still called a bailey. So bailey is just kind of a generic term for the village part of a castle. And then the last one is the, the most modern version of the castle which is the concentric castle, which isn't too different than the stone keep. The big difference is that there's a second exterior wall that's lower than the main perimeter wall. And it basically, so you have a two-layer defense 
which was a big deal in medieval times because the inner wall being higher allowed people, the archers, to shoot over the first wall. Um, so you have twice as many people being able to shoot. And also you'd had this death zone between the two walls where if attackers got past the first little wall, they were just like in this no man's land of just arrows raining upon them from everywhere. So because the bailey part of the castle kind of gives us our, I'll call it like lower income housing section, like not everyone has to be able to build and afford a giant castle with all these fancy bits. There's kind of a lot of ways where you can get everyone in a technical definition of a castle without too many problems. Like technically, you could just build a big wall around like a city and the whole city technically becomes a castle and you just pick the biggest building in there and you're like, yep, that one's the keep and everything else is the bailey. And you could have, like, in the suburbs, you could have, like, gated mini-communities with, uh, with you know, with a lord and followers, kind of. Like, you know, your landlord is literally just, like, the lord of your castle. <laughs> and everyone else just kind of lives in his walls. You probably have to strap some weapons to the walls, so. <laughs> yeah, and so that's that's kind of where I'm going next. So, to, to meet the, the, the definition of a castle, the large building, thick walls, battlements, and towers are not big deals. Like, the thick walls, I mean, typical building walls are, like, you know... A house has six-inch exterior walls. You could build an eight-inch wall and count that as a thick wall. Or you could use stone. There's not really any supply problems with getting lots of rocks to build walls. Battlements sounds fancy, but actually just refers to, like, the jagged part of the wall, like the top of a wall where it goes, you know, up and down. I don't know. <laughs> better when you explain it. Where, there, where there's gaps for you, you to like shoot, shoot in between. between. Yeah. yeah, that's ba- the definition of battlements. So that's easy to do. And towers, of course, are also easy to do. But the key, the key part that's still part of the definition is fortified against attack. Now, we have different types of attacks nowadays than we did in medieval times. And I think you have to fortify against modern attacks for it to count as a real castle. So kind of modern types of attacks that we have. First one, guns. And really, not too much changing here as far as like what you're going to expect for defense. I mean, they follow the same principle as arrows. In that, you know, if you're on top of a wall with a gun, you have an advantage against someone approaching with a gun. So you can just use that same method to provide your gun protection. I would add, say you have to have bulletproof glass if you have windows installed anywhere. But that's pretty much it for guns. The next one I have here is drones. Drones do change the game for particular castles. Typically in the medieval times, not too much was flying over your walls. But drones could definitely still screw with your property. So... I think to deal with drones, I think you just kind of have like this, I imagine it as like a a net almost, like a, a plastic net that's rigid that kind of like goes over your castle as like a dome so that drones can't like fly into your castle. It's like a cage. Yeah, like a cage would be good. So that's how you're going to deal with these drones. Another modern type of attack is hackers, any kind of technological hacking, uh, things along those lines. And so I was looking if you could build, like, electromagnetically shielded walls to protect you and your fun electronics inside. And yeah, it's actually pretty easy to build, like, a Faraday cage of sorts simply just by adding conductive materials to your walls. Or actually, you could use your drone net and just build out of conductive materials to provide the same kind of protection. Alternately, while I was doing some research on EMF shielding, you could trust the, the fine folks at Conscious Copper which will provide a small little like five inch copper block that you can buy for 80 bucks that supposedly reduces EMF exposure in a 500 square foot radius for, you know, healing, I guess. Like it was very much one of those like 
crisp, you know, magic crystal type websites, but it's for a little piece of copper that you put in to protect yourself from the 5G. Conscious popper? Conscious copper. Copper, okay. <laughs> Conscious copper, yeah. You know, I'm actually going to take this. I love their little disclaimer at the bottom. It's, it's, a little, it's a little lengthy, but it's fun. The products and information on this site are not intended to diagnose, prescribe for, treat, prevent, mitigate, or cure any disease or ailment. The information and products are not medical devices and are not intended for any medicinal or medical purposes. No government agency or anyone in the medical field endorses, approves, or validates the quality, the effectiveness of all products sold on this site for use of EMX protection. Conscious Copper makes no representation to the effectiveness or quality of the products offered on this site. <laughs> okay, that last one's pretty a pretty big statement right there. <laughs> Conscious Copper expressly disclaims all representations, warranties, conditions, and covenants of any kind, whether expressed or implied, including but not limited to warranties or conditions of non-infringement, merchantability, fitness for a particular purpose, durability, and accuracy. Consumers should not rely on any representations made in the third-party site's reference, testimonials, and reviews to the effectiveness of the products offered on this site and are cautioned that use of the product for EMF protection is at consumer's own risk. They sound confident about their own product. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. It's just like, hey, also, our, pro- our product is not guaranteed to do anything. In fact, we explicitly say you should not trust it to do anything or <laughs> right. rely on anyone who says it does. No expert has, has endorsed this. We don't say it's quality. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So hopping back to my list of, of modern types of attacks here, I, I wrote down package thieves as here. Um, and I think this is less of, hey, you have to do something specific, but more like this is going to be my personal pet project if I build a castle keep home, where the punishment for package thieving is going to be like, it's going to be medieval. It's going to be like a trap door or something that like, if I see you trying to steal my package, it drops you into like the mode. I'm going to have the optional mode. It's going to be filled with crocodiles and it's going to drop you in there if you try to steal my package. You're saying that package thieving is, is considered an attack? It's not just it's a, a, mod- a crime. I, I would say it's a modern type of attack. I mean, medieval villages probably had crimes. Yeah, and they crime. also, you know, had defenses against crime. Like people thieving from a castle would have to like sneak in over the walls and come in and steal your the, the, the royal jewels and whatnot. I guess. Important things were kept in castles for a reason. Like it, it makes sense. It tracks. I'll say this. It really doesn't change my answer. It really doesn't impact anything. There's no real definition here. I'm just gonna. I'm just saying, if I have a castle, I'm gonna fuck up package thieves. <laughs> it's just a me thing. <laughs> this is just a me thing. Bombs are a problem, and by problem, I mean I, I think this is an optional defense. I think you can still have a fortified thing without being bombproof. Obviously, you can do lots of things to make things bomb resistant. You can add more reinforcement, steel, you know, doubly reinforced concrete, super thick walls, all that to defend against the bomb attack. I guess it's just if your enemies have bombs and then uh, tear gas and chemicals. I'm not sure if you could achieve an effective level of like negative pressure in your castle or like a a ventilation system strong enough to suck out air. You know, if if someone threw a, you know, uh, a tear gas canister over your walls, I think you could have an emergency system that like just like straight ventilates it out of there that's also one that's going to be like pretty expensive to implement but definitely doable because we do do stuff like this in places and then my last one here i don't have much i don't have a conclusion here i want to open this up for discussion and see if you guys follow my logic so the way castles are attacked you know are regular attacks but really once you got to the stone keep and concentric castles it was basically impossible to just invade a castle and take it over they were too well defended so the way people would do it is through a siege 
Now, I don't know who would be sieging your house if the addition of castles into the world reinvigorates siege warfare. So I started looking at the, you know, the stuff we've covered a bunch of times, sustainable farming, solar power, making your castle self-sufficient off the grid. We've done that a million times. And I realized you could do all that. But if, you know, my house was invaded and I couldn't go out to the grocery store, what I would do is I would just order from Grubhub. <laughs> so my, my what I posit to you guys is, does having all castles revive siege warfare? And if so... Do Grubhub drivers become siege breakers? And what does that look like? <laughs> well, I was going to say they fly it to you by drone, but you already took care of that possibility, so. <laughs> I guess you could have a you could have a little gate in your in your in your uh in your dome for Grubhub drones. You, you just turn out the Faraday cage for a second and pull the drone in and I was going to say that the person sieging your house is the person trying to get your packages. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, it's horrible. <laughs> I guess I guess I guess then like because the the drone is pretty good because you do have food drone delivery. So is it really going to be a arms race between ways to take out drones and ways for drones to sneak food into your castle? (laughs) You got to have a way to identify the drone, though, because like it's probably pretty easy to disguise your drone as a an Uber Eats drone. Right. Yeah. You just just, you know, slap a sticker on it and give it a pizza box and you're in like. I mean, the apps do have tracking. You could use the official tracking to make sure that the the gps coordinates of your drone match the one that's approaching your house with a pizza box but how accurate are those that's always off on mine it always says it's like five miles away and it's already here mine's pretty good in the city like i can usually see when my driver pulls up and like it'll roughly match when their car is there the problem is if there's like two side by side which one do you let in yeah you gotta play like two truths and a lie with the with the drones I'm <laughs> one drone always lies one drone always truth. tells the truth and one drone is full with poison pizza <laughs> i guess yeah i guess it's just it's just gonna be an arms race there again i don't know who's gonna be sieging your house that's kind of where the disconnect is is who's taking the time to siege your house long term in which you'd have to rely on the grubhub drones but hey it could happen <laughs> protect yourselves <laughs> And uh, yeah, that's that's what would happen if, if everyone had a castle. Ben, what did you what what kind of house did you cover? So I looked at igloos. So 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 first off, so what exactly is an igloo? Igloo is actually just the the Inuit word for house, but specifically, it's it's a usually temporary structure made from blocks of hard snow. So they don't they aren't using you know like freshly fallen powdery snow. It is older like mostly frozen snow they're actually cutting out of the ground in blocks the snow seeds some things it's hardened (laughs) yeah exactly and it was it was actually even amongst the Inuit, not used by all of them it was really mostly used by people in canada's central arctic region and then in greenland's thule area which i think is the northern portion of greenland it's just you cut out these these blocks of of snow and sort of spiral them up into a dome um, and the idea is that that dome will trap in your body heat and it'll heat up to a more reasonable temperature. Frequently, you would also use some sort of external heat source as well inside. Uh, traditionally, it was a seal oil lamp. Now it's usually a Coleman stove or a lantern or something. And the idea is that as the air heats up inside, the inner layer of the wall is going to melt a little bit and then refreeze. And that's going to help it hold together and seal it against the wind. You know, sort of melt and refreeze. They'll get to the point where there's basically an equilibrium point where the warmth being absorbed from you and your stove on the inside matches the warmth lost to the outside air, and it kind of just stays stable. How how warm is actually get inside? 
so this is a, a part where I have a quick segue and, and warn about maybe trusting things always on Wikipedia. Because as I was researching this and trying to figure out how warm it actually stays inside an igloo, I kept seeing this number that didn't make any sense to me, where they were saying that the internal temperature in an igloo can range from 19 to 61 degrees Fahrenheit when worn by body heat alone. And that made no sense to me. <laughs> that seemed impossible. But I saw it, I saw it cited on Wikipedia, and I saw it brought up in multiple other places. I probably got it from Wikipedia. Right. It was mostly just, you know, Quora and, and stuff like that. So I didn't trust it more because of that, but I just kept seeing this number. Um, and I went through to the citation, and what it was was a paper that a group of students at Cornell wrote uh, for a class about simulating heat transfer using, you know, simulations. And they simulated the the heat transfer in an igloo. And their actual finding was that the air immediately around the person, which this was a naked person in an igloo is what they were doing, would be around 98 degrees Fahrenheit around the surface of their skin. And then right above them, around it would be around 62 degrees Fahrenheit, which is kind of the top of that range I had seen. But the majority of the air inside the igloo would not heat up beyond around 35 degrees Fahrenheit. And the reason for this is that they made a simplification to their, their model, which was that the body temperature of the human would not change. <laughs> so the human would stay at a constant 98 degrees Fahrenheit always. Constant energy source. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and would not lose any temperature to the air. I mean, is that is that... Okay. Is that a crazy assumption? Because the body, human body does like to stay around 98 degrees before it dies. It does. But what they're saying, their results then are that if you assume the human body is going to be 98 degrees, the air around the human body will be around 98 degrees. Above then, it'll be a little bit colder. Everywhere else will still be very cold. So I think what actually happens is that the human slowly dies because they're in a freezing environment. Not technically freezing. 35 degrees, Ben. That's pretty good. That, well, so that's assuming <laughs> assuming that the human is still putting out 98 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm just saying I feel like that's a pretty big caveat. Regardless, even if you take them at their word there, it still is not 60 degrees inside an igloo. Even if, if you assume your body stays at full temperature you will be technically quote-unquote warm, but the entire igloo is going to be very cold still. Um, and that's actually from anecdotes I was finding how it kind of works, is that you can get it to around 35 degrees or so, even with it being 20, 30, 40 below zero outside, just because the snow is actually a very good insulator. Snow has is, is a great insulator, and when you get that layer of ice inside, the wind is is pretty completely blocked and if you're too cold bed you can just jump into the 68 degree part oh yeah a exactly hot. you're good yeah no problem <laughs> the area directly above you where it's warm so so it's it's cold but it is livable you know you're probably gonna need some some a nice sleeping bag and you know some warm clothing but you can survive an igloo that is certainly true i mean people do it so so how, how big can igloos actually get uh the biggest that's ever been built was built in 2016 by igloo dwarf which is an ice hotel company and they made one that was about 34 and a half feet tall with a 42 foot diameter, which yeah, about 1,400 square feet. It was it took 18 people about three weeks and 1,400 blocks of snow to build. Um, so we can build them big. We can make them real big. Is that igloo for sale on the market? How much is it? I I have I do not know. It is also in Switzerland. My house hunt is getting more desperate. <laughs> it is also in Switzerland, so you have a bit of a commute. I hear they got I I hear they they got some good government programs over there. There you go. Maybe I move. And obviously, there are also ice hotels, which uh, the first one, the first ice hotel actually was made because someone just made a big igloo for an art show. And they, it brought tourists in because, you know, it's a cool big igloo, whatever. And some of them just decided to sleep in it, basically, because they 
or probably drunk or something. Who knows? Um, so they took some, you know, sleeping bags and deer skins and went in this, this big igloo and slept in it and kept raving about it and how cool it was. So the next year, the company was like, well, we can charge for this and just built an actual functioning lodge. They have a whole hotel that from December to April, you can sleep in a room that is entirely made of ice on a block of ice if you want to. They have a bar there that is entirely made of ice, including, you know, the bar and the glasses, everything are all ice. Um, so clearly we can make these big structures, you know, we could have theoretically this society with actual structures made of of snow and ice this is something that you know we, we can do but then the question is you know obviously how how do we make this last uh when it's not below freezing and the answer is you don't you can't do that they're made of snow they're gonna melt which presents a problem <laughs> not great it's not not ideal so the next question is you know can we raise the melting point of the snow uh the answer is no apparently i couldn't find anything I try to look into some, some, you know, maybe something involving pressure or something or something you can add to it. And as far as I can tell, you can't, you just can't do it. People have tried for like ski retorts and stuff. just doesn't work. So if everyone's going to live in igloos, um, we're going to have to stay where it's below freezing, which means that basically the only place we can live year round is based, the poles. Even looking at, you know, I looked in some of the, like the research bases uh, in our Antarctica that are near the edge of Antarctica. And they, and, and, you know, I guess it's like January, it's, you know, summer for the Southern Hemisphere. They have average temperatures in the mid to upper 30s. So even then you get some pretty severe dripping uh, and probably have to move a little bit further inland. So, okay, what if we slightly expand what we call an igloo? What if we say an igloo doesn't actually have to be made out of ice? Because there is another type of house called a sod house, which is the same idea as an igloo. Um, but instead of cutting out this frozen snow, you're cutting out blocks of sod out of the ground and sort of stacking those into a home. They're really bad, as you might expect. They really, really suck, particularly in the rain. Sod is not particularly good at keeping rain out, but it is an option. And so what I kind of see as being, if we are going to commit to this everyone lives in igloo and igloo-adjacent home strategy, um, what we're going to kind of have to do is... In the, the summer months, everyone kind of clusters at the poles. And then as it starts getting colder further south, you or south slash north, I guess, depending on which pole you're at, you drift down and then come back up <laughs> once it starts getting warmer again. And in that time, you're just gathering food to basically make it through these terrible, terrible months where you're all stuck at the poles. Which did lead to another question I wanted to answer that I just didn't really know the answer to, which was how do like the traditional Inuit people you know, what is their diet? Because obviously they're not farming. It's just way too cold to farm anything. And there's not going to be even much fauna around to forage for. And the answer is because they eat a lot of meat and fat. And that's pretty much it. They eat, uh, it's, it's, you know, whale and seal and caribou. And that's kind of it. And when, you know, people did investigations, investigations into the diet, their diet was basically around 40% protein and 60% fat. <laughs> that adds up to 100 it does well no but like like that's kind of um what's really interesting is that the assumption would be that you know you'd probably try to eat more protein just because you would assume it has more nutritional value but what actually happens is as far as i can tell that 40 percent is kind of the the ceiling on the amount of protein that the human body can take and they kind of just figure that out and just ate a lot of fat to sort of get the extra calories they need to survive and they actually you know when they discovered this back in the 1900s when there were or I guess 1800s, or 19th century, when there were, you know, explorers up 
searching the Arctic and things. And there was actually a guy who went to a hospital and just ate on that same diet with like a bunch more protein and just got super sick to like prove that was what happened, which was, you know, some nice <laughs> devotion to science there, buddy. But like, to be fair, he was doing, he was just eating like a bunch of steak and stuff. So, you know, it wasn't that bad for him, but I'm so certain this will go horribly wrong for me that I'm going to do it. Well, what's funny because because <laughs> he actually, his expedition he was with had to do it just to survive. They were eating, you know, like really lean caribou and stuff and all getting super sick. And he was basically like, well, I got to prove this actually happened. So take me to a hospital, bring me a bunch of steak, and we'll figure it out. Like, Bring me to a hospital and bring me many, many steaks. <laughs> Early medicine was uh, something else, guys. <laughs> just, just, could you imagine being in the room like with an actual like terrible illness and the guy in the bed next to you was just there so he could eat a bunch <laughs> of steaks, steaks to prove a point? He's just, he's just eating steak and having diarrhea because he's eating only steak. <laughs> Too basically that steaks. was what was happening keep eating steaks it's like hey dude can i get some of that steak he's like oh it's no, no it's, it's for far si- too dangerous it's for science i'm sorry <laughs> but yeah and and you know the other thing that was that has been found out is that the other question was where where they would get all their vitamins because for the most part in most diets you get your vitamins from leafy vegetables and things like that and it turns out if you eat specifically it's it's like raw organ meat of you know various things that they eat you can get the vitamins you need. You can get your vitamin uh, D because obviously you're not in the sun quite as much. Um, vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin A, all of those from it's like like raw kidneys and I think brain. They it eat. has to be raw. Yep. Because so when you when you cook them, the vitamin levels decrease, and there's not huge levels anyway because you're already getting it. Basically, what you're doing is the vitamins they're getting from you know whatever really rough vegetation they can eat. You're getting sort of the trickle down effect of that that's caught in their liver, right? But when you cook it, a lot of those vitamins get depleted. So basically, if we're all going to live in igloos, we're going to be very cold. Uh, we're going to eat a lot of raw organs. We're going to basically live like the Inuit, um, the traditional Inuit style. And yeah, that's I like I like Marcus's version better. <laughs> it seems better. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I don't think Grubhub has seal liver. Although I haven't looked that that closely personally. Anyway, Chris, what did you do? So the home that I looked at, or the, the question that I specifically answered was, what if everyone lived in trees? So it's a fun question. Obviously, my mind went straight to tree houses and um, building tree houses and trees. That seems like a pretty big leap. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You could just like hang out in a tree and call that living in a tree. <laughs> Like Tarzan. Does Tarzan live in a treehouse? I don't know. I guess uh, not. Yeah, I think he just lives in the actual tree. Uh, I don't know if gorillas live on the tree or on the ground by trees. Both? I know there are some animals that lives in, live in trees, and they obviously don't have treehouses. I mean, you don't know that. Can't say it for sure. <laughs> yeah, they're called birds. They have birdhouses. Boom. Yeah. Done. <laughs> but anyway, treehouses specifically, I want to look at what kind of resources you'd need to build a treehouse for, like, if you're doing it on a global scale for everyone. So to do this, I looked into how many trees it takes to build one house just normally. And uh, there's a website, homepreservationmanual.com. They had like an article where they went through this and they estimated that it takes about 44 mature trees per 2,600 square feet. And I also found that Around 3.4 people live in a house, like a single house, on average in the U.S. I use the the U.S. number because it was a little easier to find than like the global number. 
but based on that and the world population, that means that it takes around 89.7 billion trees to build a house for everyone in the world, assuming that 3.4 people live in each house. So obviously we, we use trees for other things too, though. We use it for paper and fuel. Trees are one of the most consumed natural resources in the world. And I actually referenced back to a previous episode that I did, episode 103, where we talked about what if everyone was one inch tall, and I talked about trees um, as a resource. And I found that we harvest 15 billion trees a year, and we replant 5 billion trees a year. So we have a net loss of 10, tree, 10 billion trees per year. Really? Yeah. I think I said this last. I think I said this last on that episode too. Now that now that I've said it out loud, <laughs> I get a little deja vu. But I could have sworn we fixed the tree problem. No. <laughs> like it was so big in like the early two thousands and the nineties of like tree sustainability, and then all the companies that were like, "Yep, we plant more trees than we take down." And I thought we were tree positive now, but I guess not. Nope. Well, I mean, so I guess we just stopped caring. I think these numbers are from twenty seventeen, so maybe they did change a little. I don't actually know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, slightly you know, old data, but <laughs> I mean, the last presidential cycle was really big on helping the environment. So I'm sure they, <laughs> they picked up on those trees. I'm sure they invested some money in that. Right. <laughs> so this means that since there are like there are 3.04 trillion trees in the world is the number I found. That means that uh, at this rate, we're going to run out of trees in around 300 years, which isn't great. And these are numbers like these are the normal numbers without us having to live in trees it's just normal life but if we do live in trees that means that there aren't going to be some trees like we can't use some of the trees because we're going to be in them (laughs) so that just reduces the number of trees we can use and i want to figure out how many trees a tree house would actually take like the square footage of a house how many trees would that occupy so in the amazon the tree density it ranges depending on where you're looking in the amazon forest it ranges from 400 to 750 trees per hectare. And that means that the average range that you use for a house or for like square footage, it would be around 187 square feet per tree. So that, that, that comes out to around six trees per house, assuming that you have like a two-story house based on like the average size of a home. So that adds to our, our total tree count that we're going to be using. It, add, it adds up to 103. 5 billion trees total and that number is growing because our population is growing so it means that our need for housing is also growing and according to the un the world population by the end of the century is going to be over 11 billion um, which is a pretty big increase and it means that we're going to require 2 billion new homes within the next 80 years so on average we're going to have to increase our homes by 25 million per year So that adds an additional 1.1 billion trees per year to our total. Uh, That includes like the building material and the tree estate part of it, like the the area per tree. Uh, Did you? I thought you said tree estate. I did. (laughs) It's the new word. I did. (laughs) I was gonna say it and see if you if you noticed. (laughs) I did notice it because I was like, "What did he? Did he just stumble, or is he trying to make a pun here?" But he's not acknowledging that he's making this very very (laughs) bad pun about real estate. Yeah. And yet I love it. <laughs> so in the grand scheme of things, the house, like houses at, uh, using trees as a resource is actually has a relatively low impact on the consumption of trees compared to like paper and fuel and other stuff. 
but houses still do have a uh, play a factor into it. So like if we adjust the way we do our homes, then we could potentially help fix the problem. So I was thinking like we could maybe like make smaller houses and try to like have more people live in the houses as a solution, potentially that that could help. But we're still having the, the same problem. We're using trees for two different purposes, for the building material and for the tree estate. And that just doubles up on the resources in a way that is kind of useless. So what if we can eliminate one of these things? So the building material side of it is actually has a much bigger impact than the amount of trees that we're living in, like that the, the space of the house has to take up. So it's 44 trees per house versus six trees per house. So if we eliminate that building material aspect of it, that means that we can have a much bigger impact on the tree consumption problem. So looking at this, I, I kind of looked at the question in a, at a little in a little more of a literal sense. What if everyone lived in trees? What if everyone lived inside trees? Because then that eliminates the need for building material because you're just using the tree. So there's an article that I found by Graham, Graham. I don't know if that's pronounced his name, but Graham D. Ruxton. And he argued that, or he was he was stud, like analyzing tree hollows, basically uh, trees with hollow tree trunks. It's also known as piping is the term that they use. And he tries to talk about like why so many trees have hollow tree trunks. And he states that it's a common theory that this is like an adaptive thing that microbial and animal life consumes the wood in the trunk and it converts all that wood into nutrients that goes into the soil for the roots of the tree to soak up and it actually benefits the tree that's a common theory and then he also argues that the cost of the tree to defend against like attacks against its wood in the trunk is very low in terms of the reduced amount of structural integrity so like if it's hollow, it doesn't actually really affect the structural integrity that much. So the tree is like, I'm not going to defend against it. I like that our trees are making these these careful pro-con decisions <laughs> about their life. These, these, my body, my choices. And looking at, the, looking at the data, it just doesn't make sense for me to fight off this bacterial infection. Take it. Take my central trunk. <laughs> I don't need it anyway. I'll just suck it up for nutrients. Yeah. So he actually looked at a, a few cert, certain areas where this is common. So there's... a there are surveys of savanna woodlands in Australia that found hollow cores in 66 to 89% of the trees, which is a lot higher than I expected. And then in some areas in the Amazonian rainforest, they found around 37% of the trees had hollow trunks. That's a lot. Yeah. And they said on average, these hollow cores extended to around 50% of the trunk diameter, which is actually a good chunk of it. Good chunk of that trunk. Chunk of the trunk. <laughs> So how does this happen exactly? So as the tree grows, the trunk widens. And when it widens, it adds adds layers of what's called sapwood, which is it's the main structural part of the tree. And it carries the water from the roots to the leaves. It's what you think of when you think of trees. And sapwood is metabolically active. So it requires energy through photosynthesis. That's how it gets its energy. And to preserve the energy that the tree uses it actually converts its inner layers from sapwood to heartwood so heartwood is 
not metabolically act active it doesn't distribute any water or nutrients it's just like there and doesn't really do anything um but it doesn't it doesn't eat up energy because it's not metabolically active so because of this uh, it's not really active so it's not defending against like rot and decay which is why sometimes the core of the trunk decays and then becomes hollow now if you look at the structural capacity of a tree the tree is basically like a cantilevered cylinder with like if wind is blowing on it then it has to resist the wind force so basically any cantilever or just anything in in bending in general gets most of its strength from the outer edges of the thing not from the center of the thing so there's a study to support this where they looked at hollow trees and they actually found a critical point in like the amount of the core of the tree that needs to be gone for it to be structurally compromised so they found this critical point to be 70 percent of the tree diameter Anything below this, the tree is fine structurally. Anything above this, you need to start worrying about it. But 70% is a lot. It's a lot more than I expected. So how much area do we have for our home if we're assuming 70%? I looked into like the widest tree trunks in the world. And the widest one I found was a Montezuma cypress in Mexico called... That's a cool name. (laughs) Well, that's the type of the tree. The name of the tree is called... That's my next character name in like... If I if, next time I make a character review game, he's going to be called Montezuma Cypress because that's fucking awesome. <laughs> Montezuma Cypress. <laughs> the actual name of the tree is Arbul del Tul. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Also, another character <laughs> name. <laughs> yeah, and this tree has a 38.1 foot diameter trunk, so 70 percent of that gives us 558 square feet of area for our home, which is actually a good a, a good size for a home. That's approaching smallest castle territory, 585 square feet. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Castle tree. Pretty awesome idea. And then the second widest tree in the world is a baobab. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a type of tree called a baobab. I think it's baobab, yeah. Yeah. There's a baobab in South Africa called the Sunland baobab. And this is actually a real-life example of a hollowed-out tree that has been used for like human purposes so it has a 34.9 foot diameter trunk that's and it's it's hollow and it actually had a fully operational bar and wine cellar in the trunk and at one point it held a party for up to 60 people in it so there's a good amount of people um, that it could fit and it did eventually die in 2017 the tree died so it's not there anymore but there, there's another tree in Namibia called the Ombalantu Baobab, something like that. It's also big. It's smaller than the, the wine cellar one, but it can hold up to 35 people. And it once served as a chapel, a post office, and a house. So just a few examples of us living inside trees or like using the insides of trees. So it's possible. We can live inside trees. And that's how I interpret this what if everyone lived in trees question. We're all going to live inside them. All right. We're just going to have to wait for lots and lots of big trunks to pop up. Good thing we're not cutting them down into anything. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And I think with that, that brings us to our would you rather question for the day. Ben, are you ready for a would you rather? Yes. This one is actually going to have three options. Oh. Of the three houses we talked about today... Which one 
would you rather be in charge of selling to somebody? Oh, selling to somebody. All right. Somebody. It's not it's not the not igloos. The igloos. <laughs> that's let's just go ahead and write that this one you're wrong marcus this one only has two choices. options still yeah <laughs> it's not the igloo igloo is a temporary it's gonna be pretty tough could be cheap though it might be an easy sell it's like yeah why not why wouldn't you buy the igloo that that's true that is true actually the choice seems pretty obvious to me the choice also seems pretty obvious to me hey marcus why is it not the castle yeah <laughs> um because the castle is going to be horrendously expensive <laughs> hmm that is true. So if you're going to sell the whole defended castle, you're going to have EMF shielded walls that are thicker also with like a big drone net over it. Well, I mean, who are you trying to sell this to? Like it depends on who your clientele is. Well, you can sell it to whoever you want. If you like, you'll have, you, you'll be going to, you know, rich clientele with this. So maybe the answer is castle in that you, it's easier to find a quirky guy who's into big, super defended castle, but maybe it's easier to find, you know, hippie person who wants to live in a tree for a bit or someone who has like a five dollar bill was like yeah sure you can have it for an igloo why not or they want to take like a two-week vacation to antarctica because they're adventurous and they just need a, a place to stay i would not recommend an igloo for that <laughs> maybe a tent a but tent you would because you're trying idea. to sell it then well I, this is how sales works but i don't believe in my product marcus that's the problem <laughs> <laughs> so are we for the tree one are we doing tree house or living inside a tree well, you said it's li- you want people to live inside the tree, so it's got to be the inside the tree house. Okay. Which could be pretty cool. You could yeah, have a good. Cool. You could have a nice like yeah, five hundred square foot like studio that is like really fancy in a tree. All right, I'm gonna say it actually is the tree because a big component of the castle answer is that it has to be very heavily defended. And if I'm trying to sell <laughs> to someone and they go, "Hey, why do you have all these defenses?" I'm gonna say, "Don't worry about it." They're not gonna believe that. <laughs> Well, there are doomsday preppers, Ben. People, there are people that are looking for specifically for defenses. It could be a selling point, not a. I'm not technically. I'm not legally obliged to tell you what's, why there's so many defenses. What's, what's the What's the Venn diagram between people with millions of dollars and people who are doomsday preppers look like? Because it's basically Tim Thomas, who used to be the goalie for the Bruins back in the Stanley Cup days. Now, you know, I think there might be a bigger overlap because to get in, to get really get into it, you do need some amount of disposable income to justify spending on it. Like there are some, I'm sure there are some people who do it that can't really afford it. But I think the, I think, I think a lot of it comes from, hey, it would be cool for me to have this shelter and I got some disposable income. So I'm going to make this my pet project for a bit. And the goal is to go and, you know, to defect, to have a safe spot. And then you start doing research and then you go down the rabbit hole. That's like so there there is an option there, but yeah, I'm thinking I'm 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 leaning into the tree. I think the tree is gonna be the one is gonna be pretty reasonable to sell because it's gonna be not a huge space, so the price should end up reasonable. It's gonna be pretty unique. It's it has a it has a sell. It has a pitch. I guess the castle is huge, and it's probably way bigger than anyone actually needs. And I think a lot of people would be like, that's too big for me, just for like me or my family. Like a lot of it is just going to be empty because it's basically the size of like a town or like a. Well, it can be it can be lots of different. Things. It can be and it, like if you just have if you're like take a, a suburban home, make the fence, the wall and the house is the keep. That's a castle as well. Oh, I guess you said 3000 square feet. Yeah, 3000 square feet is just like a. it's a large home, large building. Okay. Yeah, sprawling castle is a whole different story. I mean, you could yeah, you could try and sell someone a whole gated community that they could turn into like 
the ooh the stone castle apartments and it's just like you know you have uh you turn into a whole business adventure hmm <laughs> see now that's kind of appealing to me now <laughs> so, so, the, so basically you're saying that the treehouse is is a cozy you know single family living situation and the castle is an investment opportunity uh you know what when you put it that way actually <laughs> the igloo's still out igloo is so still, still out <laughs> igloo is nowhere <laughs> the close to still contender. out <laughs> the igloo is hey you got 20 bucks i'll save an igloo in the arctic right are there actually are there any things that require home ownership to get like how you can buy people like a plot of land in a swamp to give them a lordship can you is there anything that you can do with igloos like that like here's a certificate that you own this igloo and therefore are officially like a arctic explorer or something i don't think there is i don't think there is i doubt it i actually don't know which one i would choose yeah, this one's actually really i'm tough. pretty split between them all right i'm gonna start i'm gonna say i'm gonna pick the treehouse because i think you need someone equally quirky to buy either one and you're gonna have a bigger demographic of people that would could afford the tree trunk so I think you might have more potential buyers for the treehouse than oh, yeah, you would. I keep on forgetting for... that this is selling it and not living in it. Yes. What are you doing, Chris? I guess I'm also going to go the tree house, basically for the same reasons. And I just like the concept better, I think. That makes sense. I, I think we're going to uh, to make this a three for three because I'm also going to go with the treehouse. Because what I have just thought of is that I'm pretty sure the most popular home on airbnb is a a actual treehouse oh it's not anymore well one of the most popular homes on airbnb is a like treehouse not in a tree but you know like yeah the, you're gonna have to not call it a treehouse when you yeah, sell it not not a yes a house house in tree but <laughs> not like hardwood. that <laughs> yeah but i figure the treehouse can actually go either way or you can either have it as a very cool home for yourself or also as an investment opportunity if you turn it into like an airbnb situation you'd be quite successful so i think you get, you get the best of both worlds with the treehouse yeah so if you enjoyed what you listened to today or are interested in purchasing an igloo from yours truly the best way to get in touch is by leaving a review on your favorite podcast app just put in five stars so that i know you are a legitimate buyer and you know post hey i am looking for an igloo in this location and i will hook you up and get in touch with you that way sometimes it takes me a while if you don't hear from me for three or four years don't worry about it i'm sure i will get to you next i'm very busy but yeah you can just leave that in the review section of your favorite podcast app or if you want to just pay for your igloo up front you can go to our patreon at www.patreon.com absurd hypotheticals put your dollar in the thing and in addition to your fine igloo home which is totally in the works and will be available for you shortly anytime in the next 15 20 years or so you will also get access to our behind the scenes slash fireside episodes that we do every month we release a bonus episode on our patreon exclusively for you the patreon listeners super sweet if you want more absurd hypotheticals that's the best way to get it the second best way to get more absurd hypotheticals is by waiting for the inevitable passage of time and joining us next Monday when we answer the following question. What if all animals could fly? <laughs>